I'll never forget the day I, I know exactly where I was sitting. I was on the phone with the, with the president of the company and the VP. And I was like, listen, where I come from, if a man says something, it's good. Like you don't have to, you don't have to go get legal documents drawn up. I mean, it was between you and I. And the answer I got back was, yeah, well, you didn't get board approval. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete, proven, step-by-step -step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Rick Nicholson. Rick, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock and roll. Oh, yeah. So let me tell the story here of Rick for the audience. Some would say Rick is a serial entrepreneur because of the seven restaurants he has owned over the last 13 years. He would say he's just a guy trying to do the stuff he loves to do while trying to make enough money to survive. He hates the term serial entrepreneur. He has a strange combination of skills that include a sound understanding of accounting and marketing, which helps him identify potential business opportunities. He currently owns three restaurants, a consulting business, and is a partner with Wizard of Ads in Austin, Texas. In his spare time, he coaches his son's triple-A baseball team, sits on multiple boards, and wonders where the world will take him next, Thailand. So, Rick, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Well, I, I used to be an executive in a franchise business, and what happened was I started getting excited hanging out with all these franchisees and decided that it was time for me to get into business for myself. I was, I was asked to be a teacher and I'm, I was in these rooms and I felt more like the student than the teacher. So I said, okay, well, it's time to learn from the real teachers of the world, these entrepreneurs. And so I bit the bullet, found a way to finance a half a million dollars for my first restaurant, had no cash of my own. Well, little cash, but not a lot. And so I started my own business and it happened to be a restaurant and a competing franchise. And from there, things, you know, didn't take off right away, but in short order, probably two, three years later, we ended up buying a second franchise in the same group. And my wife joined the business with me. We had the two businesses. And I was never quite fulfilled being an entrepreneur in a franchise. So I'd always had this dream of owning my own coffee shop. And so I, <laughs> I started a coffee shop with the intention of franchising that out and maybe roasting my own beans and doing all these, you know, all the things that fellow coffee shop owners want to do one day and but I was bound by these franchise agreements and, <laughs> and I come from a very small town 500 people actually probably more like four people but the suburbs of a town of 500 and I always felt that a man's word was his bond and you just live by that and <laughs> what ended up happening was when I wanted to open the coffee shop I called the VP of operations and said, listen, I want to do this thing. Are you going to be okay with it? I'm bound by this non-compete clause. Is it going to be a problem? He's like, no, it's not going to be a problem. Don't worry about it. I'm like, okay, cool. So as I'm starting to develop and figure out the menu and figure out everything else, <laughs> the, <laughs> the VP got fired. 
and a new VP came in. So I went back to him. I'm already into this thing for about $50,000. And the new VP comes in and I said, geez, I better, I better call him and make sure he's okay with it too. And he says, yeah, I, I got some questions for you though. Can you, can you answer these emails? And so I, I sent him some emails back and he, uh, <laughs> he said, yeah, no problem. It's not going to be an issue. So we, uh, we went and built a coffee shop. And from there, six months later, I got a lawyer's letter in the mail saying, you're in violation of your franchise agreement. <laughs> and it, was, it from, was it from him or someone else even above him saying? Him and the president. So that's, that's my story. I don't know if I was supposed mm. to say that right away or that's you just perfect. want to kind of highlight. And, and so what, what did you do? My God. Well, the first thing I did, I was in shock. I was like, no, no, no. We've already had this conversation. It's not a big deal. And I've talked to the previous VP and he said it was okay. And now you said it was okay. And we have a misunderstanding. Let's just, let's just work this thing out. Then they suggested that I talk to my lawyer. I was like, whoa, right. I don't have the deep pockets that you guys have. And I'll talk to my lawyer because I think it's probably a good time. So I did that and my lawyer wanted to file an injunction and do some other things. Anyways, in the end, I was like, you know what? It's just, it's just wasted energy. Let's not worry about it. So we negotiated a termination date of the new business. So I did open it and mm. before I got the letters, but we negotiated, they gave us a little bit of time. They were good on that side, but I'll never forget the day. I, I know exactly where I was sitting. I was on the phone with the, with the president of the company and the VP and I was like, listen, where I come from, if a man says something, it's good. Like you don't have to, you don't have to go get legal documents drawn up. I mean, it was between you and I. And the answer I got back was, yeah, well, you didn't get board approval. I was like, well, I didn't know there was supposed to be board approval. That should have been on you to direct me down that path. And the, the president of the company said, well, that's too bad, isn't it? I was like, yeah, it is. So that moment in time, I was kind of, I was kind of at my wits end anyways. I wasn't, I wasn't feeling a creative outlet working in this franchise environment. And on the cusp, I just said, you know what? We're getting a divorce. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, we're done. I, I don't trust you. And now that I don't trust you, we can never have a, a good relationship. So I understand your situation and your position, but you have to understand mine. I'm just not going to be here anymore. And I'm going to sell my two franchises. I'm gone. And, and he's like, the president was like, well, you don't have to do that. And I was like, no, yeah, I do. No, I do. Cause I, I just don't trust you and we're so never going to be just, able to get along. So I understand what you were saying. Just so I understand that you had the two franchise already and then you were doing this additional thing. Yes. And then once they, you know, got played hardball on the additional thing, you said, that's it. I'm not with you guys anymore. I'm out of here. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I said, I would, I, I promised that I would sell or close that third business but at the same time, I said, I will not only close that, I will sell the other two businesses that are your franchises. And I don't know if I was a star in their franchise network. I mean, I was the fastest growing franchise in the network. We were growing at 43% annually, where the average is about three. We were doing some really cool, innovative things to uh, bring in the guests. And I just felt that, you know, forget the appreciation and forget, you know, the star status and all that foolishness. I just felt that we weren't on the same page in terms of respect. Mm. And did they try to do anything to keep you in or they're like, uh, okay, well, I know, no, I mean, we had a couple of conversations and, 
and they reiterated that I didn't have to leave that, you know, it was, just, it's, it was an unfortunate situation. But for me, we were past that. It was like, it was like my wife coming to me and said, Hey, I just cheated on you. I was like, no, it's too late. We're done. Yep. 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 So what lessons did you learn from this experience? Well, a couple being a, uh, you know, a, a down home rural type guy that just because you say something doesn't mean it's going to happen. So I've, I've taken that to heart. And I know for some people you'd be like, your some of your guests or some of your listeners would be like, well, of course you need a, you need a legal document for everything. But I can tell you in my consulting businesses, a lot of business is done by a shake of the hand. And I still do a little bit of that. But as soon as that shake of the hand is done, we execute it with a document. There's just no room for ambiguity and, and misinterpretation. It's like, no, this is what we're trying to do. And are you on board or not? So before I go spend any more money, I just you know, spend $1,000, get some legal advice, draft up a piece of paper, and, and then we're off to the races. Got it. Got it. Let me uh, summarize what I take away from your story. There's a few things that come across to me. Uh, there's a f- some of the thoughts, you know, the first thing is that if you find yourself in trouble, like, you know, okay, fine, you guys disagree, you think I'm violating this. Not every problem has to be escalated into a big problem. You know, sometimes you just stop what you're doing and say, all right, that's fine, I'm going to stop. And generally, the trouble can go away. It's when people get dig in and they decide, I want to fight this. And sometimes, as you said about energy, you know, it's just not worth the time and energy. So sometimes, you know, for the listener out there, I think, you know, the idea is that sometimes you can just stop, you know, and if it's troublesome and it's causing too much trouble, just stop. The second thing that I take away is this non-compete. Now, I'm going to just tell a quick story. When I left my career in finance, I was doing a particular type of quantitative research and creating a product that I was producing at that particular investment bank. And then I decided I wanted to, basically they, they were like, they had had enough of my style of stuff. They wanted a more traditional person in place. And I was kind of maybe eccentric or whatever. So I basically started a another my own research company right across the street and basically took you know what I did and I went there now of course that would be a violation of non-compete in addition I took my main employees the guys that work with me and that would be a violation of non-solicitation so and I teach ethics so I always use this as an example to my students that that's what I did but but it was not a violation well, the students say, how, how could it not be a violation if you had that in the contract? I said, because I went to the company and I asked them if I could do it. So just because it's written in writing doesn't mean that you couldn't ask. And what I said, I know you have this non-compete and non-solicitation, but the reality is, is that these guys work for me. You know, what are you going to do with them? They were like, yeah, we understand that. And I said, and also you've already kind of shown that you don't want this product so much. So would you mind, you know, letting me off of that and let me, you know, start on my own. And they said, and the CEO said, no problem. Now I did the exact same thing you did. We didn't write it down. He just said, you have my word. And, you know, luckily for me, that worked. Mm -hmm. But I think the big lesson is, is that, you know, you can negotiate and, and ask nothing wrong. Another question I had in my mind is, you know, one of the things about big companies is sometimes they're so narrow minded that they miss opportunities you know, one opportunity is that they, they probably should have said, well, why don't, why don't you let us hold 20% of that? Maybe there's a new franchise model or something that we could learn from that. 
<laughs> and then you work your butt off to make some money for us too. You know, and that, that brings me to the last thing, which is uh, one of the things I've learned about Thailand. I mean, Thailand's very unique in some ways compared to the way I was raised in the, in, in the U.S. And that is confrontation between people is not rewarded. I mean, it is not encouraged at all. Socially, you don't, you know, fight each other and blow up and all that stuff. Whereas in, in the West and in the U.S., I'm pretty used to no problem directly communicating. But what I learned from that is that not everything has to go to a confrontation. So sometimes, you know, when I, when I look now after living in Thailand for so many years and I look back at like videos of police in, in America, as an example, it's like they're constantly bringing on the confrontation. Now you could say, well, they, they, they got to subdue that guy. Yeah, I don't know. I've seen plenty of Thai police handle pretty difficult situations and just going in slowly and gently and not drawing a confrontation. So I think from my, what I take into my business life is that not everything has to end in a confrontation. So, you know, talk about it, you know, but obviously if you find out this is just not the way I want to be treated by the people that I work with, then, you know, it's a great idea to walk. So those are some of the things that I thought, is that, did I miss anything? No, you actually nailed it right on the head. The, um, have you consumed the new Malcolm Gladwell book yet? Which one? The brand new one that came out last week. No. What Strangers Say or When Strangers Talk, something like that. I, Anyways, I, brand new book. It talks exactly about that and confrontation, especially um, some of the police activities as it relates to the whole Black Lives Matters movement. And it also talks about you know how we interpret someone and their behavior, whether it's body language or what they say, and what they're actually saying could be completely off base. And it's a really interesting thing when you're thinking about whether it's dealing with a, a, a positively charged situation or confrontation and understanding that you might be misinterpreting what the other person is saying through their body language. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes and I'm going to get it myself. Heck, Malcolm Gladwell could have a huge spike in his revenue and sales of his book. <laughs> <laughs> all right so based on what you've learned from this particular situation and what you continue to learn in your life what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate absolutely make sure that anything that is of consequence if you're going to go spend a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars make sure that you get a legal document drafted and everyone's on the same page not that not that even that can protect you, but it's at least one further barrier that could stop any, any further issues. And I guess the benefit of it is also it just clarifies what's their role, what's your role, what are you, you know, sometimes just the process of drafting that and the person goes, no, 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 I'm not, I wasn't saying that. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, okay, this helps to clarify what we're actually committing to. Exactly. And I don't know if it's my healthy ego, but in this case, we, uh, we we took this on and when I decided that I was going to sell both businesses, we took a hit of about $250,000. It was, it was painful. Well, sometimes the right thing costs. So, well, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Man, I want to travel. <laughs> I, I mean, I have three bricks and mortar businesses and a couple of consulting businesses. So, you know, phone lines and internet connections and away you go. I want to do more of that and less of the bricks and mortar stuff. Living in Thailand or living in Mexico or Peru, it just seems like that would be the exotic life. And, and not to vacation, just to kind of live and, and enjoy different cultures and, 
and being a, maybe a, a bit of a nomad for a while. Yep. That's kind of my goal. I, we just got through Canadian summer here and it's getting closer to autumn and I haven't been on a vacation in about a year. And last week I sat down with my wife and said, we're going to Vegas. Like, I just want to get out. So we've, we've booked two weeks in Vegas. Somebody told me it was too long and I think it's not long enough. Yes. I haven't had any worst investment ever stories about Vegas, but I imagine they'll come one day. <laughs> I don't know if that's an investment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, great. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Rick, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Man, I just want to say I had a ton of fun today, and I want to thank you for having me on the air. Amen. Amen. Well, we totally appreciate it. As I often say, you've taken your worst investment and now converted it into something great by sharing it with others. And trust me, most people are too afraid to do that. So well done. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.